Tracy has, there's not a person, I, I would almost wager, there's not a person in this room that started as far in the back of the line as she did. What I mean by that is, at the age of 17, she was sleeping under cars on the streets of L.A. so that she could avoid being molested. I'll just leave it at that. Her, her dad was in the California State Penitentiary, as were her two of her other brothers. In other words, she didn't come from a great family background. And she met Jesus in the army uh, because somebody looked like Jesus. And she tried to prove that they were fake, and it found, found out that they were absolutely the, this, this uh, soldier was the real deal. And as a consequence, she rediscovered the great riches that are in Jesus. And she has dedicated her entire life. And when I met Tracy 25 years ago, uh, she had a truck and a backpack. The truck was paid for. It was a Toyota. uh, And it was something that she was constantly praying about giving away because she was afraid it might possess her instead of her possessing it. Because what she had learned is that because of her immense poverty, she really falsely assigned way too much value to things. Isn't that interesting? Is that sometimes the the most the, the richer you are of soul, the less possessions possess you? Well, what she has done is literally transformed a section of the earth that 25 years ago was completely devastated by civil war and the crime and violence and torment was just beyond belief. Well, I just, I do, I want to extend to every one of you the invitation. In fact, we're, as soon as COVID's over, we're probably going to take a team over there and once you get over there, in fact, Daniel and Jesse uh, have great adventures about building some of those buildings you saw. And none of that existed 20 years ago. All of it is changing a region of the world in a profound and deep way. So everywhere we go, the Lord seems to just prosper because he always meets us at the point of our sacrifice that's part of what the cross is our cross is when we say this is the own this right here right now you and me when we get to heaven we can't make any more sacrifices we can't offer to jesus the fruit of his labors And you only get to do that once in life, in this life, on this side of eternity. Make your life count. Well, we've been talking about intentional discipleship. Uh, I'm going to give you my last four points in case I don't get to them all. 
Disciples are made through intentional building of authentic, affectionate, and forthright relationships. This is for all of you very left-brain, linear folks. The second one is disciples are made with intentional plans and processes. The third one is disciples are made with intentional modeling. And finally, disciples are made with intentional humility, accountability, and submission. Okay, I got that out of the way, and we'll just see how we proceed today. You okay with that? Uh, Can anybody, has anybody written down my definition of disciple-making? Can anybody... Holly's got it. Okay, Holly's got it. Okay. Holly, you want to, she probably doesn't have it right on her, but I'll, let me just tell you what the, my definition of disciple making. Disciple making is the intention. Do you have it, Holly? Okay, go for it. I am, somebody paid attention. (laughs) Give that girl an A. Okay. So let's summarize exactly what a disciple should be. A disciple submits to a teacher who teaches her how to follow Jesus. A disciple learns Jesus' words. A disciple learns Jesus' way of ministry. A disciple imitates Jesus. Jesus's life and character and a disciple finds and teaches other disciples who also follow Jesus are we beginning to I've said this every week I I had a friend of mine who uh, said that the Lord told him he said I want you to preach the exact same sermon for the next 12 weeks and he said what would happen every Sunday is the folks would come out the door going, that was such a great word. I really appreciate it. And he was going, you're not bored with it already? Which kind of goes to some of the points I've been making is you can't disciple anybody from right here. You just can't do it. What you can do is talk about what we're going to actually practice. It's like coaching. Nobody ever learned how to play football or basketball or soccer listening to the coach talk at his dry erase board. In fact, if any of you ever were an athlete and the coach was doing that deal, I don't know about you, but I completely zoned out. It was almost like I... You know, I see the X's and the O's, and I see the, you know, where we're supposed to go. But let me just tell you, it's when I got onto the field that I actually started to understand what he was talking about. And the problem with what a, a part of discipleship is, how do we do that in this body of believers? That's really the challenge. And so... Last week, I told a story about Bill Bowerman, but I didn't completely finish the story, and I wanted to reintroduce the story. Bill Bowerman was the 
coach of the University of Oregon track team. Bill Bowerman had this philosophy. He said, if you have a body, you are an athlete. He had a really low bar of what it would mean. And part of the reason he had this, here he was in the state of Oregon, like I said last week, mostly lumberjacks, not exactly filled with world-class athletes, not known for it. It was a low-population state. And yet, here's his record. He trained 33 Olympic athletes, 51 All-Americans, 12 record holders, 24 NCAA champions, 14 four-minute milers, 16 uh, under four-minute milers, four NCAA titles, 10, uh, a top 10 finishes 16 times, but here's what he's most famous for. He was constantly tr trying to figure out how to train his guys. He was the men's track coach, and he was very unhappy with how they were equipped, especially with the most important tool an athlete that is a track runner, somebody in track, needs, and that is a shoe. And so he, one day he was watching his wife make waffles, and he had this great idea. He'd heard about this, this new plastic that you could kind of get heated, and he decided to pour it into his wife's waffle iron and create a sole for a shoe that he was imagining. <coughs> ruined, completely ruined his wife's waffle iron. <laughs> but trust me, it was worth it because Bill Bowerman and one of his former athletes started a little shoe company that became and is now known as Nike. How many of you have a pair of Nikes? Nearly all of us in this room can probably say we've got a pair of Nikes. Now, his whole goal was equipping his people. Because what he realized is with the right coaching and the right equipping, he could turn almost anybody with a body into a world-class athlete. That was his presumption as a coach. I love that because that is a perfect example of what Jesus Christ did with those 12 guys that were probably in all likelihood the rejects of the rabbis of, the, of their day. And they had just been fated to be fishermen and carpenters. And he Here's a question. If you have fewer years than a United States president to rescue the entire world, how are you going to do it? Jesus did it in three years. Three, a little bit, maybe a little over three years. Nobody thinks you're going to change the world in four years. But Jesus revolutionized everything in less than, less time than it takes for a president to end his first term in the United States of America. And we're supposedly the most powerful nation in the world. So he had a plan. And his first plan was, 
Every one of us have sat in a, a room and we felt like an outsider. I don't care how popular or cool or capable you are of making friends. Every one of us have experienced that, haven't we? But here's what happened with Jesus. Every single person that came into his presence felt accepted, even when he corrected them. There was something about Jesus that he liked hanging out with his creation, you and me, no matter how many issues we had. Remember what my, I said our goal was? A disciple finds and teaches. Oh, a, a disciple imitates Jesus' life and character. Many of us, when we come into the kingdom of God, when we come into church, when we come into following Jesus, we're like this. Would somebody love me? Would somebody? And, and you know what? That's okay. A lot of us have so many pains and wounds and hurts but instead of that being our final state, you know what he wants you to be? You're the one person that everybody that comes in your sphere feels like they have just become your best friend. You say, well, I'm an introvert. Well, get, learn how to step out of your introverted shell and love people. Well, I'm an extrovert. Well, learn how to shut up and ask somebody some questions. <laughs> you know, there's no excuse for your personality type to not be a lover. That's what Jesus did. Disciples are made through intentional building of authentic, affectionate, forthright relationships. He invited them in 1 John, in John 1, 38. He said, well, why don't you come and see where I live? They, he said, what do you guys want? They started following him. He said, well, come and see. In fact, that's really the first. In fact, you know, some scholars have done a lot of work on this. And I have, over the years, noticed this as I've studied the life of Jesus and the life of the disciples. There's a book out. It was written by a guy back in the 1700s called The Training of the Twelve. And in it, he began to explore this whole idea that there were these different invitations of Jesus. And in a lot of ways, that's what's happened in my life. And that's what's happening in your life. Jesus is inviting you to come and see. And that was his first, come and observe me. And then, the, and then John very intentionally tells you first about Cana, the wedding at Cana. And in that, he's saying, come and observe me, hanging out with my guys. His mama comes up to him. He's going, mom, it's not my time. I'm not supposed to do this miracle. He does it anyway because Jewish mamas have their ways. And he did this miracle, and he filled up all these pots, and I can't remember how many they were, but the equivalent number of bottles of wine that Jesus made was about 907, according to people that know that kind of thing. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit extravagant, and not only that, it was the best wine. 
for a party that probably couldn't consume 900 bottles of it. That would have been a really big party if there was. <laughs> See, these guys started watching Jesus. And the, one of the very first things that they observed was how extravagant loving he was. How much he was, his, his extravagant affection for the people around him was. Are people observing that about you? Are people noticing how extravagantly affectionate you are to people that are complete strangers? Well, he wasn't just affectionate. He was also forthright. He was authentic and authenticity and transparency. We hear that. We want authenticity and transparency from our politicians. You're never going to get it from politicians. Don't, don't even think about that. But uh, you're going to get the appearance of authenticity and transparency. There's a lot of difference between those. But one of the characteristics of that is this. Jesus was very direct. Uncomfortably so. And he said nothing calculated to an, enhance his own image in the eyes of the people he was talking to at the, the expense of truth. Let me say that again. A lot of us try to make sure if truth doesn't get said, we still look good. But Jesus was never afraid of offending the people he was so affectionately demonstrating his love for. How do you pull that off? Well, he did. And guess what? The purpose of your life and my life is that every one of us learn how to do that. And you're going to spend the rest of your life becoming like Jesus. Discipleship is increase, the increasing resemblance of looking like Jesus. Being able to say without calculated, self-referential avoiding of truth is a hallmark of characteristic of someone who can be trusted. Don't always like what they have to say, but I'll tell you this. I want them in a gunfight or an eye fight or any fight because they're, they're true. I want to be... How many of you want to aspire to be that kind of person? How many of you want to not be calculated about your own self-image just because you don't want to be disliked? Would you rather be faithful to truth than your own betrayal of truth? I would. I want to always be that guy. You know, there's a book out called The Twelve Rules of Life, and the psychologist that wrote it it's a, number, it's a New York Times bestseller, and one of his psychological truisms that he mentioned that is a reflection of healthy humanity is tell the truth, at least don't lie. Now, you know, a lot of us say, well, do I, I you know, it's like the joke we all hear, honey, does this dress make me look fat? And the answer is, no, it's your 
Whatever. That's the wrong answer. That's the at least don't lie. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that dress makes you look fat because that's true. Something else does. Okay. But I didn't, you don't have to say all the truth all the time. Okay. Okay, number two. Disciples are made with an intentional plan and process. Last year, I wrote to the elders and some of the leaders of the church, and I said, I believe that we're going to spend the next year, maybe two years, talking about this whole idea of how do you, how, has been part of my whole message the last several weeks, is, is a lot of us, I think, sometimes assume that we're better at something than we actually are because we don't compare ourselves with people that are world-class at it. It's kind of like uh, the difference between a minor league college football team and the Super Bowl champions. There's, there's a lot of difference. And that's why we study. That's why coaches go to coaches clinics. And I've been kind of going to a coaches clinic. It's called the New Testament. And I'm starting to observe a lot of things about how Jesus did things. And I'm not sure we're doing a very as good a job as we can. But you know what? That's, that's the good news. We get to be disciples of other people that can teach us and train us. And so if you're going to implement a plan in less than four years that changes and rescues the entire universe, basically, how would you do it? Well, first of all, you'd have a plan and a process. So when you don't know what to do, you know what often we do is nothing. When you don't know what to do, you just do nothing. So we began to realize as a staff and elders that we needed to have something so people could go, how do you make a disciple? So could you throw up the graphic on the... Uh... We came up with the, the devoted disciple cycle. And the reason we called it a cycle instead of a track, which implies linear, every single phase of your life may go through one of these sections of the wheel no, over and over and over again in your life. You may discover at the age of 60 or 65, or 70, or 75, that Jesus is wanting you to, to deliver you from a fear, a shame, an attitude that has entered your life. And without a process to kind of understand what's, quote, happening to me, you go, well, so we've got five, we, we spent the first part of last year talking about decided. Then we, then we started talking about delivered and what that looked like. And we've kind of just been talking about what? What does it mean to be a disciple? And one of the characteristics that it needs to be, means to be a disciple is you have disciplines. Now, the old 
reformers and John Wesley and Calvin, all of them, they referred to these disciplines as the means of grace. They don't earn you anything with the Father. They just create a channel for the grace of God to be poured out in your life. And we're going to spend several weeks, probably going into the summer, talking about these disciplines that you are a devoted disciple develops disciplines. A, devo- a devoted disciple is developed and deployed. We're going to cover all of that over the next year. But if you don't know what the process is, you won't do anything. The question is, where are you? Do you know where you are on this? I can tell you, I'm actually in about two or three stages in different phases in my own life right now. And I can, I can tell you exactly what the Lord is doing because I have this kind of understanding. And the, the, the whole point of every one of you is that you can do this with the people you're discipling. You know where they are because you have been discipled yourself. You know that I, uh, I was, I, I remember... This, this lecture I got from my linebacker coach when I was in high school, and he was yelling at all of us because we miss, we'd missed a bunch of tackles in the game, and we just barely survived a team we should have beaten quite a bit. And one of the things he, he did is he said, we're going to spend the whole practice doing nothing, nothing but tackling drills. And one of the things he said, he kept emphasizing, he says, never, ever watch the head, never, ever watch the feet, always watch the waist. Because it doesn't matter where their feet are going, and it doesn't matter where their head is going, where they're going is where their waist is headed. I didn't have a clue what that meant, and you probably don't either. But you know what he did is he started, he made us go against all the running backs who were the fastest, quickest, and one of them ended up being an All-American. And, and uh, uh, th- these guys were really hard. And he would take his hat and throw it on the ground. He'd go, Joe, of course, I said, look at his waist. Yes, coach, yes. Well, you know what? I began to believe him because I was so distracted by the helmet and all the juking and the jiving and the feet doing this. And I just watched the waist and I started realizing, you know what? I don't have to do anything until he does something. Just watch his waist because what his whole goal, the running back's goal is to get you off your game and off your balance and off your feet And just be really bored with all the other stuff and pay attention to the waste. And that's why I led my conference in tackles starting my junior year. Because I learned how not to get distracted by all the noise. I was discipled with some discipline. And it wasn't always gentle and kind, but I learned it. And it made me a better football player. Well, you know what? This is a perfect analogy of what we're talking about. 
Some of us are getting so distracted by every juke and jive of the enemy that you just don't pay attention to the real warfare you're involved in. And you need a coach to say, you're getting distracted. You're looking at the wrong thing. All right. Number three, disciples are made with intentional modeling. I don't want to spend too much time here, but here's what I'm going to say. Ron Johnson, my linebacker coach, uh, had little spindly legs. I mean, you know, ex-athletes, well, you're looking at one. Uh, they don't always, they're not, they don't look like they used to. How about that? <laughs> he had spindly legs. He had a belly that went like this. I mean, we used to make jokes about it. Not in front of him, of course. But he used to get down with us, and he'd, he'd say, come here. And he'd go, all right, now, do this. And we'd do it. And, you know, we'd look at him, and we'd kind of, okay, all right, yeah, I see what you're doing. And, could, you know, you couldn't always see his waist. <laughs> there was so much other there. And, and so, but, but what he would do is he would demonstrate, he would model it, and he'd he go, no, that's not what I did. And we go, yeah, it looked like it to me, coach. But because he just wasn't able to run quite as fast. But you know what he did? He walked, he talked, and he modeled it through us so that we would know how to make those moves. And he would say stuff like this. You know how I didn't move my feet? I don't want you to move your feet. I want you to just stay on the balls of your feet. And if you do move them, just keep them, keep the... Keep the tension out so that when, you, when he makes his move with his waist, you're moving that very next second. You ever, if you ever watch some of these guys, you go, I, there's no way they're stopping that running back. He is going to get past it. And next thing you know, he makes the tackle. And I will, if you watch, you'll notice something. They don't watch the noise up here or the noise down here. They watch the middle. It's not complicated. So, we demonstrate the why, the what, with a how, and when, and with a who. We have to do more than teach about it. I'm teaching about it, but somebody needs to show you how you learn to love your enemy. You learn how to, instead of quitting that job that you have a horrible boss with, you learn how to love that boss and win them into the kingdom because that's why you're there. But because you're just trying to save your life, you're going to miss an opportunity to change the world for Jesus. Does that, is this making sense to you? How many of you still want to follow Jesus? What if he says, well, that's the job I want you in. This couldn't have been God's. This boss is horrible. They're mean. They're rude. They're, they're hateful. You go, well, do I have to put up with that abuse all the time? Maybe not, but you know what? If that's God's assignment, it's kind of like being a missionary. You know, you go, God, there's not a missionary on the planet that didn't think they were going to be the next Judson Taylor or great Hudson Taylor, the, the next great missionary that becomes famous. Yeah, they, I mean, they... They 
they, they kind of have those little fantasies. That's the way we are, isn't it? You know, and Jesus' way of doing things is always the exact opposite. When he gets a crowd, instead of going, I tell you what, we got a pretty good crowd here. I tell you what, let's do, guys. Let's break out. Let's hand handbills and give them our address of our next meeting. That's what Jesus did. He'd withdraw and go pray. You know, Bono started reading the Message Bible. How many of you know who Bono is? Bono of you two? Okay, everybody knows, or I think most everybody does. He's getting old, so maybe some of you folks might not know him, but those of us over 30 know. Well, Bono had started reading the Message Bible, and he was just blown away by how relevant it was. And so he wanted to see Eugene Peterson, who was the writer of the Message Bible. He, he had, was in the United States. He was near where uh, Peterson lived. His agent had found out that Bono was trying to reach out and meet uh, Dr. Peterson and uh, they said, we, we can arrange this meeting with you uh, and Bono in the next week or two. And he says, well, no, I just can't do it. And the guy said, it's Bono. And Eugene Peterson said, no, it's Isaiah. Because he was having to finish up his translation of the Old Testament. You see, when you're in the kingdom... You have a, you, you, you're not fascinated with celebrity. I, I can imagine that some of the famous celebrity preachers that have fallen, that we all hear about every year, it happens every year, some celebrity preacher has committed some sort of, mostly immorality. Those are just the famous things that get, never found out that they were cruel to their wife or their children. But we don't hear about those, we just hear about the immorality stuff. But and, and if you go, hey, you know, this, this famous celebrity personality in, Christian, in American Christianity is going to come and, you know, he's going to disciple you. And a lot of us would get real excited about that. But I can just tell you, I'd rather have Scott Likens disciple me. I'd rather have... Brad Jackson, disciple me. I'd rather have Katie Revel pouring into my life. See, that's why it says, know those that labor among you. Imitate their lifestyle. See, the church has got to get to the place where it goes, yeah, you can, I can show you how to live. I can show you how to look, look and start being like Jesus. You want to know how to pray? Hang out with Joyce McCann. Any of you ever go, I don't really know how to pray. I mean, some of you may go, I just don't know how to have. Well, you know, you go, who was that lady you talk about, Steve? Because I want to go hang out with her. She might go, well, I'm not, you know, most people that actually do it don't actually think they're that good at it. Listen to this. According to learning researchers, 10% people remember 10% of what they read, 20% of what they hear, 30% of what they see, 
50% of what they see and hear, 70% of what they say, and 95% of what they teach someone else. That's why Jesus said, go make disciples. All right, disciples are made with intentional humility, accountability, and submission. All right, let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's not going to be up there because I want you to listen to it. I want you to hear the word. I'm not against you reading it in your own Bible. If you really want to read it in your own Bible, there's one Bibles under the seats. Uh, they're in the NIV version. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version. 1 Peter chapter 5, just listen. The elders, and this is, this is the Apostle Peter writing this, the elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. That famous verse that we all talk about, cast all your cares upon, it's, it's all talking about a, a dynamic of leadership, accountability, and yes, that notorious words Americans hate, submission. All right, let's talk about this. First of all, I think you have to start with this concept. It all starts with humility. It's interesting how he says, younger men, submit to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility. One of the things that Paul said, he said, Timothy, he's talking to his young disciple that he discipled. He said, the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Notice that? He wasn't going off and saying, well, I'm just telling you something I'm not telling anybody else. He wasn't saying this in private. He was saying it publicly. I want to God hasn't called us to be just cheerleaders. He's called us to be coaches. Nor has he called us to be drill sergeants. There tends to be this inability for most of us to stay right in the middle of the road. And there, there tends to be like this paradox. Um, and and let, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read you this. 
Because I wrote it, and I think it says it better than I can preach it. Traditional academic approaches to teaching via the lecture of a professor to the students is the way most churches teach all nations to obey him. That was and is a far cry from how Jesus did it. He practiced an encouraging accountability with his disciples. Accountability is one of the critical components found in Jesus' methodology in making his disciples, which is most often missing in our processes. If someone says they accept accountability, whether it's a government official or your accountant, that means they acknowledge an obligation or a willingness to accept responsibility or to account for their attitudes, actions, and behaviors. For most of my life, there's been a monumental struggle and conflict to discover and then to practice healthy biblical forms of accountability that create faithful followers of Jesus Christ. There are two paradoxical truths that seem to work in opposition to each other. One is the priesthood of the believer, and the other one is our need to practice submission, humility, and accountability. Like all biblical paradoxes, the difficulty comes when we reject the elegant discomfort found in the paradox. Instead of embracing this elegant tension, we choose one truth to the exclusion of the other. The limitations of our finite understanding wins out, and therefore we fail to comprehend God, in God's infinite wisdom and the paradox that he doesn't mind making us live in. So we demand one truth over another. Let's not do that. Let's examine these seemingly oppositional truths. The first one is our mandate to stand before God on our own without any intercessory people right between us. Can we all agree that's, that's foundation? That's what Martin Luther in the Reformation discovered. He said, the just shall live by faith. We don't need a, a priest to help us forgive our sins, right? We all got that, right? Well, how come James says we need to confess our sins one to another so that we may be healed and forgiven? Don't you hate it when the Bible contradicts itself? That's not a contradiction, folks. That's a paradox. That is the elegant brilliance of God in his infinite wisdom doing what our finite wisdom can't comprehend. Let me read you something. Jesus said in Matthew 7, he said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The first thing we notice about this road is how constricted and small it is. You can't just meander all over, all over the place 
and stay in the middle of the road. And every road I've ever seen has a ditch on either side. And you know what we love to do in the church of Jesus Christ? We love to drive down one ditch or another instead of stay in the middle of the road. Protestants tend to emphasize the priesthood of the believer. Roman Catholics tend to emphasize the authority of their leadership. Both are relevant and both are true. So, a lot of us talk about the cost of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made, made a book that has changed the lives of many of us in this room. But there's a cost of non-discipleship too. And what it means is that some of us will never overcome the besetting sin that plagues you. Some of us will look like we did the day we got saved. We'll never change. Some of us become so despairing we'd finally give up and quit on the Lord. And, the, and a, in a lot of ways, it's because you've never had the, you, you keep missing the tackle. And all you need is somebody to go, you're looking at his helmet. And now, yeah, but you've got a habit of looking at the helmet. Some of you are, are, are depressed because you focus on, you have a confident expectation of all hell breaking loose in your life. And you think that's a normal way to think because that's the way your family thought. They trained you to think that way. They trained you to expect bad things to happen in your life. You think that's the biblical way to think. It's not easy to stop a habit that you may have had for 50 or 60 years that your mama and your daddy trained you to do. But it's not the way Jesus is going to renew you. Last night, I was being a granddad, and, and Heath, our, my three-year-old, uh, Andrea's son, was, was behind me. He'd been crawling on my chair, and he, he had, when I got in, the, when I got in he, he was proudly showing off his puffy jacket. Had a really nice, bright orange zipper, and orange is kind of my color for my grandkids, and they know it. They always point out the orange in their clothes, so they know that they're relating to granddad. And, uh, so so he, he shows me his puffy jacket, and I'm, I'm listening to him. He's, he crawls off the back of the chair. He's kind of hanging on me, and then I hear him kind of getting angry, and I'm thinking, is he, is he mad at one of his brothers? And no, he's just yelling, and he's, he gets mad, and he's, you can help, you can, he's just, next thing I know, kind of out of the corner of my eyes, I see that coat flinging across the room and he's struggling to get it what I found out is he couldn't get it on he'd taken it off he'd taken his coat off and he was having a hard time putting it on how many of you know it's easier to take a coat off than it is to put one on I'd forgotten that that's why in the old days, you young men, just want to remind you of the old days, is that we used to help ladies with their coats on because it's the polite thing to do. 
because it's harder to get your coat on than to take it off. Now, Paul in Colossians and Ephesians used this language. He said, put off the garment of the old man and put on the garment of the new man that you have in Christ Jesus. Can I just tell you, as hard as it is sometimes to take the coat off, it's even harder to put the new man on. That's why you need some help. That's why you may go, uh, you got to, you know, your coat, you know, first of all, I had to go over and say, well, you got the coat on the wrong side out. That's why you were having trouble with it. And he was getting so angry. He was putting it on wrong because he had it inside out. He didn't know that. There's so much that we take for granted when we're discipling people. But I think most of us are like Ninevites, the book of Jonah, where the Lord says they don't know their right hand from their left hand. And I used to think that was symbolic until I went to a country where people literally didn't know what their right hand was. Can I just tell you, we're all suffering from a need to be discipled I am there, there's somebody who goes you know I see something uh, in your life and I, I need and I, I I just always want to be the guy that goes oh really help me I want to I become more like Jesus amen let's all stand up For you to become, some of you have come up to me and said, I'd like to be discipled. The way we have structured our church is we have life groups. We talk about this. Chris, why don't you throw this up? Crow up the five circles of the church. Do you have that graphic? Okay. This is something we talk a lot about in Antioch. Me and Jesus, two or three gathered, the house to house, the gathered church, which is what's now and then our mission to the world. Lately, I've been really meditating on those, and I, and I feel like these middle three actually energize the, the two on the end. It's kind of a feedback loop, but it's... And I think we do the gathered church pretty good. I think we do house to house pretty good. But I feel like the Lord's been saying to me, we are weak in our gathered two or three, and we're, we're getting... We're going to do a retreat with the elders uh, next month, and... Um, I guess it's in May now. Is it May? It's in May. And we're going to really focus on this, but can I just tell you, there's nothing like a group of two or three guys or two or three gals who meet together. And I have a whole lot of stuff on that. But suffice it to say, if you want to be a part of a discipleship group, and I've had a lot of people who are my age, say, you know what, I've, I've never actually had somebody sit down and coach me. It's kind of like a lot of people that love football but have never played it. They, they never, they, a lot of people that love the sports but they never got to play the sport. So they just kind of live vicariously through other people. I, I actually think that's why podcasts are so popular. 
instead of you actually getting the word out of your own life and having Jesus teach you, you go get somebody that's actually learned how to get the word out of their life. I'm not just trying to discourage podcasts, but what I'm trying to say is every one of you, if you have a spiritual body, you are a spiritual athlete. And it's our job to turn you into those spiritual athletes. And the two to three together is where, you know, coaches, there's all kinds of coaches on a, even a basketball team, but even a football team or soccer team. You had coaches that were line coaches. You had linebacker coaches. You had defensive back coaches. You have quarterback coaches. You have running back coaches. You have position, and you want, you know what they did? They broke them down into little groups to train you specialized in the specialized area you need to be in. Some of you have a prophetic gift. Some of you have a teaching gift. Some of you don't even know what kind of gift you have because nobody's ever worked with you. But you need to know. You need to know who you are. Are you a miler? Are you a sprinter? But every one of you have a spiritual body that turns you into an all-American, an Olympian spiritually. That's, that's my goal. Take ordinary farmers, engineers, teachers, nurses, doctors, lawyers, I don't care, single, impoverished, stay-at-home moms. I don't care who you are. That's your destiny into the kingdom of God. Amen? How many of you like that? How many of you want to be trained to do that? Well, it's not going to be easy, by the way. And you can always say, I don't want to play. I want to quit, coach. It's voluntary. Let's pray. I just have a sense. I'm not going to have an invitation. This, this, I am going to have an invitation, but I want you to do it right where you are. I want you to pray this prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to follow your son. And I want to follow those believers that have gone before me as flawed and frail as they may be. Because I want to become like you. I know their real goal is to disciple me to you. Father. That's what Jesus wanted. He, he wanted to reveal the Father. Lord, I know I've had some of you have had some bad moms and dads or coaches or teachers or supposed mentors who were indifferent or incapable or incompetent or didn't care didn't had had no affection for you I want you to forgive them right now to say well that doesn't stop the fact that I still need to be mentored and coached and and trained is there somebody like that in your life I want you to forgive them right now I just want you to say father I forgive them I choose to forgive them I ask you to give me the grace to keep forgiving them coming up please come up I don't know who's I want to turn this over to 
approve. Oh, you, this is it? Oh, okay. They're waving at me. 